there in podcast land. Welcome to the Retirement Coach Podcast. I'm Mike Keenan, your host. Last week, I talked about my recently published book, Don't Ever Quit, a journal of coping with crisis and nourishing spirit, which is available at Amazon. Today, I'd like to read two excerpts. The first excerpt is from part one, epilogue as prologue. I was tired. Perhaps that helped me acquiesce, adopt a passive mode, not of resignation, but rather a calm objectivity that saved my life. Speed was the other contributing factor. Once initiated, impossible to stop, concluded in mere seconds. Ordinarily, those brief fragments of time don't seem to carry much import, yet in mere moments, life dramatically changes. The bang from a gun, the thrust of a knife, the diagnosis from a healthcare specialist. All day long, I'm roofing on our house. As long as there is light, I finish the first story and ever so proud of my handyman talents, I work majestically higher on top of the second story, in the thin air with the birds and large deciduous trees that inhabit the blue sky. What a view. I survey the entire neighborhood, watch cars drive by, admire children play, scrutinize quarreling blue jays. Worn out, I decide to pack it in and make my descent. It's rapid, about 32 feet per second if my high school physics is correct. I cover the 25 feet to the ground in less than two seconds. What happens in the interval is remarkable. A cautious step on the ladder and the entire contraption connecting second story to first gives way. Support legs, moments before firmly dug into the finished first story shingles, slide over the precipitous edge of the eaves, dispatching me towards a mean collision with destiny below. Extraordinary phenomena rapidly ensue, reminding me of a parallel sequence 25 years earlier, an automobile accident when I traversed an elevated icy viaduct in wintry Toronto. What transpired then, as on the falling ladder, is that I experienced each affair from outside my body, dispassionately, like an objective observer called for jury duty. In less time than it takes for me to vocalize my name, I instinctively adopt a strategy, incurably presumptuous, a strategy. I'm amazed how my inventive mind swiftly works during this catastrophe. Initially, I try to make contact with the first-story roof, slow my rate of decline, and minimize impact. In microseconds, my forearms and elbows, rigidly extended, make violent contact but fail to slow down my plunge. Next, I perceive solid concrete, close to the house and farther out, softer ground. Again, in milliseconds, I lean forward, causing my body to hit and roll like an old high school football drill. The concussion is shattering, akin to that of a detonated explosive. The aluminum ladder bangs crazily off the eaves and slams into the ground below. It bounces several times before ending in a noisy halt near the roadway. Falling off the ladder, my halt is immediate. Thud. Flat on my back, squinting skyward, immobile, breathing slowly, speculating whether or not my back is broken, perhaps my neck. I worry about my lower trunk, considering my earlier troubles with disintegrating lumbar discs, but the impact transports me into unfeeling shock. 
Neighbors who hear the thud and terrible clanging of the runaway ladder scramble across their grass yards towards the crater. Someone instinctively summons an ambulance. I hear Diane from inside the house cry out, Oh no! I hear feet scampering in my direction. Fearing gross movement, I decide it's best to carefully assess damage. Already spread-eagled, I meticulously move the fingers of each hand slowly in succession to ascertain if they function, and also the toes of both feet. Mercifully, all fingers and toes respond with movement, and only the foot that took the bulk of the impact when rolling is extremely painful. Am I in such deep shock that I'm incapable of assessing my plight? Clad in shorts and t-shirt, I'm filthy, bleeding, covered in dirt and tar from the shingles, scraped against during the fall. Body tattooed with abrasions, I'm a mess. Nonetheless, I miss the calamity of concrete by mere inches. Leaning during the fall occasions my escape from severe injury. Instead of sculpting concrete, my impact destroys a harmless bed of flowers. Perennials, I hope. The ambulance arrives in record time. After examining my vertebrae, head, and other vital parts, the attendant splint my wounded foot in a pillow following prescribed St. John's Ambulance protocol. They snugly attach me to a spinal board, and the two gaunt attendants, straining from my weight, lift me into the rear of the ambulance. Ludicrously, after all that has transpired, they almost drop the spinal board on its way up. Again, in burlesque fashion, they transport me over the bumpiest roads in town to the hospital, where x-rays are taken and a doctor methodically surveys my battered part. The astonished doctor pronounces that the x-rays reveal no fractures and that I am intact, but to be sure, to use crutches for a few days. Despite the fact that it's Sunday, he says that I can work on Monday and that in a few days I can revert to one crutch. By Friday, no crutch. Why was I saved? Who saved me? Me? For what purpose? How can the human mind work so quickly, so powerfully? I know one thing for certain. As soon as the pain and soreness subside, I'll put my knee pads back on, my baseball cap, the blue building supply apron that carries my nails, and I will ascend that unfaithful ladder and finish off the upper roof. That's the first excerpt. Here's another from part two, Dr. Tokar's report. I awake and try to get out of bed, but I cannot move. No feeling in my legs, waist, parts of my arms, and my fingers. If this numbness advances further to my respiratory system, I will die. Eventually, two Greek doctors arrive, the first a GP. His cursory examination consists of rubbing a sharp metallic instrument all over my body and asking if I can feel it. He concludes that I need a specialist, and off he goes. I start to hyperventilate. It's difficult to breathe. After an hour, the specialist arrives. Soon he calls for an ambulance. I'm clad only in underwear. The skinny, malnourished-looking ambulance attendants experience great difficulty lifting me onto a stretcher. They eventually succeed, but then they encounter trouble trying to wedge me into the Atalos Hotel's ancient, undersized elevator. Eventually, my body is transported through the lobby and into what looks like an archaic First World War ambulance. It ferries me and Diane to a nearby hospital. 
Our brains swirl in a state of frenzied chaos. We arrive in the emergency room area. I'm dumped there and we are left to our own devices. People twirl around us for seemingly a long time. Nobody seems interested in our plight. Does anyone here speak English? shouts Diane. A doctor standing beside her takes over. After a quick summary of the morning's events, he places his hand on my bladder, which looks like it might explode. He has me catheterized, allowing the dammed-up urine to freely flow into a plastic container. I cannot feel a thing. The hospital interior looks dated. I'm wheeled to a large second-floor room. I look about, surprised to be placed in such a huge ward with 11 other men. None speak English. Nobody on staff has a clue as to what's wrong with me. After my admittance, there's minimal medical attention for the rest of the day. As night approaches, I'm sure that I will die. I think how absurd that is, that I should perish in this dilapidated Athenian hospital. Diane leaves and returns to the hotel around 9.30 p.m. There are no nurses or doctors or anyone else available. I'm too afraid to allow myself to sleep. I start to pray to remain focused and awake. I slowly enunciate each and every word. I repeat our fathers and Hail Marys hour upon hour, one after another, using a measured, deliberate cadence, a mantra to keep me from thinking of death and falling asleep forever. I visualize the three women I love, Diane and our two daughters, Karen and Kelly. Their faces are crystal clear. No other thought, much fear. I survived the night. At 10 a.m. on the first morning, I discover that I'm in a teaching hospital when my neurologist appears with a group of seven young acolytes, four men, three women, clipboards in hand, each listening intently as the doctor quickly makes his way around the beds, speaking in Greek. For five days, I languish in bed, accumulating bed sores from lack of movement. Doctors perform every test imaginable. Nothing conclusive. I'm devastated. Fellow patients shun me. No acknowledgement that I exist. Then a young lady arrives to talk with her father. She speaks English and Diane relates our sad tale. She tells her father in Greek. Soon after, I hear the word Canada make the rounds from bedside to bedside. The others now smile at me. Do they hate Americans that much? In a hospital? At about 9.30 a.m., the large windows on my left are thrown open to air out the room prior to the doctor's rounds. On several occasions, pigeons fly in, circle the beds, and are ushered out. Each day at 10 a.m., the white-coated entourage arrives. They spend increasingly longer time at my bedside, evoking prolonged exchanges in Greek. Everything is considered a potential cause, including human immunodeficiency virus infection and acquired immune deficiency syndrome, HIV, AIDS. The doctor says that he thinks that a virus attacked my spinal column causing my immune system to attack the protective myelin sheath that surrounds the cord. There is extensive damage and the nerve impulses no longer work over large areas of my body. I wonder if I will ever walk again. I visualize myself being pushed along everywhere for the rest of my life in a wheelchair. The doctor would like to take a spinal tap tomorrow. The eager group assembles and surround my bed. One carries the longest needle that I've ever seen, long enough to sink into an elephant. I do not feel like an elephant, 
more like an ant that has been stepped upon repeatedly. They warn me that there can be no movement during this delicate procedure. It's surreal. Two hold me fast while another inserts the needle to extract clear spinal fluid. The task performed right right there at my bedside to the delight of my fellow lodgers who all look on in amusement as there are no curtains to maintain privacy. Later, on my fifth day, after the spinal tap, I look up at three smiling people who enter the ward, two of whom wear Canadian red maple leafs on their jacket. They are Canadian pilots. The third, a young doctor from McGill University. Thank goodness I maintained my retired teachers of Ontario, Johnson Travel Insurance. They tell me that we will leave tomorrow, whether or not the hospital likes it, and that I should be ready for the prison break. While they talk, one of the pilots says, look at this, as they notice a pigeon roosting under my bed. That's the end of the second excerpt. I wrote this book to help deal with personal crisis and nourish my spirit. It will help anyone afflicted by crisis, you, a family member, or a friend, especially if health-related. It's the perfect hospital gift. Don't Ever Quit is available at Amazon in paperback and ebook format. It's also available in ebook format at Kobo and Barnes & Noble. If you want to know more about the exciting life of a retiree, listen to more podcasts here. Those with puzzling questions about retirement can still contact me at mjk6648 at gmail.com. And don't forget about my book. I'm Mike Keenan, your retirement coach. It's my hope that these podcasts might inspire a chuckle or two from you. Life confronts us with many adversities as we age, and to cope with these setbacks, it's best to cultivate a sense of humor. Laughter is a powerful ally. It can take down crooked leaders and corrupt officials and it can inspire hope. And that's what the Retirement Coach Podcasts are all about. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and tune in again next week.